Hello and welcome to our podcast. At In Diverse Company, we help organisations to create inclusive cultures that are not just good for business, but good for people too. We've been fortunate enough to meet some fantastic influencers in this space that really brings to life why inclusion is important, not just from a work perspective, but also the effects of change in the wider society. We'll be covering topics such as mental well-being, social mobility, men's mental health, neurodiversity and everything in between. Our podcast series is a chance for our listeners to be able to share some fantastic stories as well as taking away some key insights that can be put into practice. We hope you find this valuable. Andy, thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm going to start off as I always do by just asking you a few questions. Um, but most importantly, I'd love to hear how you'd score your mental health today on a scale of one to ten. I don't know. I'd score myself nine today. Nine? That's pretty. That's pretty high. Is it because you're meeting me? <laughs> that's right. It was, it was a five until I walked in. Here. <laughs> Great. So let's walk things up with our quick fire round. Um, I'll ask. Um, five questions and just let me know which one is more aligned to your way of thinking. So, sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Walking or exercising, do you prefer listening to podcasts or music? Music. Urban or rural? Rural. Phone call or text? Phone call. Honesty or considering others' feelings? Cool. Okay, so today we'll be discussing um, your book that's about to be published, which is Sweet Spot, um, and also why it's important for people to find and show their uniqueness. Um, So let's start off by talking about your personal journey, um, and we'll start off with you're neurodiverse, you're, you've been you've been diagnosed as um, autistic, but you're also an entrepreneur. Um, and you've you found out quite later on in life, I understand. Um, and you was already working as an entrepreneur when you got that diagnosis. So could you tell us your personal journey? Sure. Well, I've been running my own company for about 10 years. And I was struggling with issues around isolation, um, conflict, sort of lack of relationships and friends and um, so as part of my journey of, of emotional development, I, I went to meet with a therapist. And we spent an hour together, you know, I was on her couch and she asked me a lot of questions and I sort of shared stories. And at the end of this session, she said, well, have you ever considered a diagnosis for autism? And I almost fell off her sofa because I'm, you know, I'm somebody that's done a lot in life. Yeah. I've, I've had my fair share of, of achievements. I've run successful companies. I've run big departments in big companies. I've mm. been to university and all, all those sorts of things. And my association with autism has been that it's something that, that it's a, a disability or something quite severe. And have yeah. Someone like me have this. So I was quite surprised, and um, but curious that that would be her answer. So I, I went home and there's a few online tests. There's a Cambridge professor, um, Simon Baron Cullen. Mm-hmm. He has an online test, adult test for autism. And so I did it. And, and there's a threshold, right? Above I think, 32. Yeah. You're then you're autistic. And I did it. And I scored 38. Okay. So I thought, well, this is a rigged test, right? It's clearly <laughs> done by people who want to see autism in, in anyone. So I'm a member of um, a business group. And I had everyone, I sent this test to everyone that I knew in the group. So do me a favor, take this test. And yeah. Results, if, if, if you're open to that. And most of them humored me with it, and, and no one got above 30. <laughs> <laughs> Even ones that I thought would. 
What was your thinking then? So maybe it's not so skewed. And <laughs> well, it was one of those little moments of, oh dear, you know, the, the, the world or reality somehow is giving me a data point here that yeah. I haven't anticipated. Um, now, my son has been diagnosed with autistic for quite a few years previously. And so he had a caseworker who used to work with Previous to your diagnosis, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the two are unrelated, well, yeah. not genetically, but uh, yeah. it wasn't because of my son, because I hadn't anticipated it. And he had his caseworker, a guy called Jonah. So I booked a two-hour session with Jonah and um, sat down. I said, I'm not here to see you about Harry, it's just about me. And then he sort of laughed, threw his head back and laughed, and, and went, oh, okay, so you're here at last. All <laughs> oh, right, here we go. And then he, uh, you know, said some of the things, and, and he said, yeah, you know, I'm not a clinician, but it's up to me, I'm just diagnosed with such. And I remember that his parting words to me from that session were, remember that you're human first and autistic second. And I, and I almost punched him. I was, I was kind yeah. of angry. I was like, what do you mean? So I thought, right, I'm going to answer this once and for all. Um, and I contacted a charity that did a full psychiatric assessment and diagnosis. And, and what does that involve? Well, it's obviously a lot of interviews and questions, but what they really do is they go into your background. Yeah. And they meet the family members. They interview my mum a lot. And they also maybe sort of do these tests where I had to sort of it's problem solve, um, follow balls on screens, and all sorts of okay. unusual things. And at the end of it, I can remember thinking on the last day when I went to collect this report, they'd sort of done this thick inch. Report. So how a, does this go um, over a number of weeks? Yeah, yeah, it's like a six month right, okay. Um, I remember thinking, right, they, they're going to tell me that I'm a bit of a pain in the ass, but not <laughs> autistic, right? And but anyway, so they told me that I had been diagnosed. So I was a little surprised, to be honest. Um, and I, I still have an ambivalence to it, if, I, if I'm really honest. About yeah. It, because I think it's something that I'm what I would call the thin end of the wedge. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so I. I I do identify with that community and I you know, certainly have traits, but not all the time and certainly not as strongly as, as others. I, I, I struggle with this a lot and it's caused me a lot of um, reflection in the past yeah. few years. And, and it's, when something like that happens, what you do, what I do, is I then reassess all of my behaviour. Okay, like, right, yeah. All, all of my thinking patterns, I think, well, is this what I see? Is that yeah. And I sort of start to question a little bit what normal is within my own head. And so it's, it's something a little bit undermining about that, but it's also, it's a healthy journey, right? Because it's in certain areas, it's particularly spending time with other people that, that are autistic. Yeah. And seeing what things there are in common, it leads ultimately to self-understanding. So, so for our audience that aren't aware, what are some of the traits of being autistic? Uh, well, a big one is in terms of social interaction, like a willingness and an interest and engagement at a social level with, with people. Um, repetitive behaviours and sort of very, very strong focus mm -hmm. on a certain topic or issue or behaviour at a certain time. Um, so, you know, for example, if you have a routine or a particular subject that you get over fixated on, um, so it's the way of thinking about it is a it's a bit like a spider diagram. Okay. And the spider diagram is where you have maybe some separate points on it. Yeah. And each characteristic you score on, and so that there is. I mean, the frustrating thing with autism is it's, there isn't just one spectrum within it. Yeah. There are all sorts of behaviours that um, can characterise. There's also this physical element to it. So mm -hmm. it's about sensation. 
Mm-hmm. So noises, sounds. Uh, I mean, I, I have a, a remarkable ability and degree of sort of like geo awareness of, of being able to identify sort of location and orientation at any given time, which uh, and, and knowing where I am, sort of from a, from a map perspective, for example. That's one of those things. You know, autism is like it's where certain characteristics are pushed towards the extremes of, mm. of good and bad, you know, mm. positive and negative. And so what's, it's, I, what I find quite easy is to associate my autism with some of my characteristics that I see that hold me back. Mm-hmm. So I think of it as often as a negative, so you know, I have bad words of day to day. But what's harder to see is those sort of strengths. Mm-hmm. Like the, I, I have an ability to just kind of cut through the noise and, so, but that must be such an asset as an entrepreneur to not to, to be able to focus. That's one of the things that I, my myself, is one of my biggest failures is not being able to well, it's, focus. It's what people pay me to do, actually. And, I, and so, one of the questions on your list there was about kind of what have you learned or if you're a billboard. And I always think of, and if you know, the Oracle of Delphi, which mm-hmm. is the ancient Greek source of, of wisdom. And it's building like a temple, and at the, the, the top of the archway, they have the words, know thyself. Mm-hmm. And so as I get older, as I go through life, more and more I realise that it's actually a journey of understanding yourself and self-understanding. So for me, that's been a, a significant um, step along that road. Um, and once you know that, mm-hmm. you know, what actually you're... It sounds simplistic to say strengths and weaknesses, right? Yeah. So if it's school, you get assessed for strengths and weaknesses, but being able to differentiate, for example, between uh, a dream that is maybe a false dream because maybe the world has told you that that's a thing to want and something that's genuinely good for you, that takes time. You know, yeah. It takes experience. That takes takes years of understanding. And it takes you know, trying things and getting it wrong. So, for example, you know, I, I ran very big departments in, in large organizations for a while. I, I worked for bosses because a part of me and that ambition within me drove me to do that, but it wasn't good for me. Yeah. I didn't. How did you that. feel? And when you look back at that time, how did you feel? Do you feel that you were in, in an environment that suited you, you were thriving in, or did oh, you just, terrible. yeah. Terrible. I, I fought with you. <laughs> so the thing is, at the same time, I've, I've got enough sort of skills and abilities and intelligence to be, to be able to be effective enough to, to succeed. Yeah. But it's not the right fit. I, I cause as much you're not trouble. being your authentic self. You're right. just you're you're fitting within a, 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 a the parameters that need to be filled, sort of thing. Yeah. So the, so how diagnosis was helpful for me in one significant way was then okay reassessing what it is that I'm doing in my life and changing, making decisions and recalibrating what I do based on a better understanding of myself. Mm. Um, so actually, it was around about the time that I sold my company. Um, I, I had spent many years wanting to be a CEO because yeah. that was an ambition that you know the world tells me is a good thing to do, right? But what a CEO essentially does, right? the heart of the CEO is, is a people-focused position. Mm-hmm. It's about bringing together a group of people, taking care of them, yeah. aligning them in a direction, fusing them, inspiring them. And honestly speaking, I'm not very good at that, <laughs> which, which kind of broke my heart in a way because I spent so much time Reaching that, what, point. reaching that goal, yeah. And then I got there, and it was great. You're like, oh, this isn't quite what I expected. So I got having to sell the company, and then um, and now I'm, I'm, I'm coach. And what it does 
is people make use of my particular abilities in ways that are valuable to them, and but without, but I don't have all the the negative side and the baggage that I would have in that kind of role. So it was when I reflect back now how in, instructive and helpful diagnosis was in terms of decision making in my life. Yeah, it's like what I want to do with myself. It's valuable, of course, it's helpful. Well, thank you. That's that's it. the way that you've explained that really makes me. It, it aligns back to what we were discussing earlier about uniqueness, being able to show your uniqueness, knowing your strengths and weaknesses and, and how simple that, that may sound, but also just kind of finding your path and finding your way and diagnosis helped you to be able to understand more about yourself and what works best for you, which ultimately then means that you can thrive in an environment that, that works best for you. Um, you've worked with global organisations, helping them to scale up um, successfully. What is, in your idea, is the best approach for senior leaders, sorry, senior leaders to create um, both a common sense of purpose and working for a common goal, but allowing individuals to show their uniqueness? Well, um, which is what you've kind of said is the role of a CEO. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of what we do professionally. Um, you know, we, we help teams to align so that they... So what you often find in, in companies that are growing quickly is that it's very difficult to carve out the time to actually sit down and kind of remove the busyness of the day-to-day mm-hmm. and agree on some of the core foundational stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what's what's the vision for this business? Where are we going in the long term? Um, like I say, what's the, what's the purpose? What, what motivates us? And what do we need our objectives to be over the next year or the next three years? Um, and some companies do manage to do that, um, but then find it difficult to stick to it. Yeah. Right? So and it kind of gets put in a shelf, <laughs> gathers dust. So what we do is we come in and we take them through a process of defining each of those, which mm-hmm. involves a lot of debate and discussion. And um, that process of alignment typically is people sharing their ideas and, and often realising that they're more aligned than they maybe they realise. You know, mm-hmm. the conversation. And then holding them to it. Mm. And, you know, Accountability. We, yeah, we can, we can have month in, month out, quarter in, quarter out, particularly at that point of each quarter, then spending time with the team again to, to readjust. So... Um, it's you have to break down a journey into steps. Okay. So for us, the quarter is, is very important because you realign the team um, around a few key projects and priorities. It's a lot of what it's about is within the time that you have in in your day, in your week, your working time. Most of it is spent on what we call business as usual. Mm-hmm. Right. It's keeping the lights on. Mm-hmm. It's keeping the whole machine ticking over so the customers are served and you're selling and recruiting and all the stuff that the, the, the business needs day to day. Um, but there's a small amount of time that you can spend on change, mm-hmm. doing things differently. And maybe it's going after a new market or um, improving the actual performance of the organisation through changing processes, for example. And that's the time that we get to play with, mm-hmm. that, that we work with teams on to say, okay, what are the few key changes? And you have to use that time very carefully. It's, it's very valuable. And you can't afford to sort of plan something and then get halfway and stop. Yeah, you, you have to, have to follow through. through. Yeah. Um, and so, but if you do that right... 
sorry, do you believe that even if you feel that it's not going in the direction you first anticipated, you should still follow that through because there's a lesson to be learned there? Or do you adapt that plan but continue on that time scale, for instance? Well, typically within a, within a business, in one quarter, you'd have, let's say, three, four, five initiatives, mm-hmm. like key priority projects that you want to drive through. It's pretty normal for at least one of those to turn out to be either misguided or a bad idea. I mean, in my own company last quarter, one of the projects failed, right? And it was my one. (laughs) (laughs) But the reason for that is because I'm typically the one. So the more senior you are in an organization, the more time and capacity you have for change. Mm -hmm. It's usually the frontline people that really struggle to have much time for it. And so the higher up you are, the more you should be thinking forward and, and taking risks and and trying new stuff. Well, that's the excuse that I give myself. <laughs> Why my priority failed this time? But so, but to answer your question, um, absolutely, you, you continue and, and complete the overall plan, whether there are initiatives within it that turned out to be misguided or poorly scoped, or that, that does happen, sure. Um, and sometimes you have to say, right, well, that was a bad idea, and let's move on, and now, <laughs> you know, like you say, what, what can we learn from that? Yeah. So when you... When you're looking at your teams, how do you allow indiv- individuals to flourish and thrive and show their uniqueness? What's what's your approach? Well, what you have quite often in organisations is a situation whereby um, the organisation is dominated right, by a few individuals, often the founder. Entrepreneurs are terrible for this sort of thing, and, and they're the kind of personalities and people. You know, they wouldn't be entrepreneurs unless they had alpha type personalities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, so you've, you've got that personality on one hand, and then you have a team of people that feel they might not use these words, but they feel various forms of disengagement. Yep. Like, oh, he's getting us to do this. You know, or oh, that's her next idea. Right. And it's <laughs> slightly passive. Yeah. And and it's it's two sides of the same coin. It's the same problem, really. And what's required is to bring. The entrepreneur or the few key leaders that are dominating things together with the team, the management team, and actually sit down and, um, and work out the, the plans and strategies of the business together. And it solves both the problems because it's, it's an uncomfortable situation for the entrepreneur too. Mm. Right? They don't want to be in charge of everything. They really don't. And they don't want to feel that they're having to sort of push and force every day to, to get change done. And similarly, the team, they want most good people in a team, they want to have an sense of ownership in the direction of the business. They kind of mm-hmm. want to have their hands on the tiller, to, mm-hmm. to be involved in the setting of strategy because they know the business best. And, um, and, and that's at the heart of what we do. And, but sometimes that's, that's why having those sessions facilitated helps. Mm-hmm. So we do things like, okay, you know, what do you think? Or everybody's going to fill out their ideas and they're all going to go up on the wall. Um, so there's a team that I started off with last week. How do you create an environment of honesty that what people are going to put on the wall, what they're going to share is genuine and what they actually think and believe and not almost paying along with the senior leadership leadership team's vision? Yeah, that's a a good question. And it comes down a lot to the, so as a facilitator of that that session, a lot of the skill actually is involved in pulling exactly that off. You have to create a safe space. Mm. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, so there's this team we kicked off with this week and they have this guy who, Without him, they wouldn't have this business, mm-hmm. for sure, right? Because he's like a dynamo. Um, but on the other hand, he also limits the growth of the business because 
he's kind of dominant, dominant character, but he's aware enough to know that and realise it. Otherwise, you know, he wouldn't have asked for help. Um, so there's a few things. Obviously, you have to set and state the um, the ground rules of the session at the beginning of the day. You mm-hmm. have to be explicit and say, like, if we leave here today and you feel that you haven't had your say, or that the real issues haven't come out, then, then we've all failed. Mm. Like, really, today mm. is the day where you're going to share what's important, share that stuff. Um, so you have to set that up. Um, but during the day, I, I find myself at moments explicitly saying, okay, thanks. That's, that's great. Hold that thought. Yeah. And, and doing that in a way that isn't confrontational or obnoxious. Yeah. So that person doesn't feel like the owner of the business doesn't feel like they've been put down somehow and it's done out of love. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's giving this space. And sometimes I, I do have conversations with people beforehand. They say, you know, how should I approach this thing? I'm a little bit nervous. How am I going? So what's my role today going to be? I'm used to dominating all the versions. I say, well, just sit back and listen. You, if, if you need to, and one thing that you can do is you give people like a few chips mm-hmm. and, and each chip is like two minutes of talking. Um, and you can only play a certain number of chips, you know, just yeah. really has a tendency to drive it away. But if, if you do that a few times and people realize that they're going to actually be given the space to share, then the dynamic shifts. And mm-hmm. there is something about having that neutral voice in the room that's guiding the process. It's not really getting involved in answering things or making decisions, of course. Um, that creates a level playing field. Yeah. So it does work. Yeah. Um, so when we think about that, let's move on to thinking about what drove you to write Sweet Spots. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on this book. I, I, a, I really want to find out what tasks and skills I'm best aligned. I think I know, and I don't know how many people have said that to you already, but I think I know what works, but I, I, I love a test. <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I'm really keen on the personal level to kind of look into this, but I would love to kind of hear and to the audience, um, to tell the audience about what drove you to write the book um, and what key points are coming out from the book for individuals who are perhaps struggling to find their uniqueness and communicate that? Sure. Um, well, it's probably helpful just to explain what sweet spot is. Yeah. So what, what is this idea? Um, and it's it's a four-part matrix. So I, I, I love four-part matrices. And it's a very simple idea, and, and you're absolutely right. The first thing that you came up with probably is the right answer. You, you actually know the answer already. Um, but your sweet spot is it's the top right-hand corner of this matrix. So it's the things that you're good at and you enjoy mm-hmm. on the one hand, and the things which are high value and have significance and impact. So it's high on both of those areas. It's the top right-hand corner, it's the sweet spot. Um, if you spend more time in your sweet spot, then you will be more engaged, enjoy life more, you'll get better results, probably have more financial success, particularly if you're an entrepreneur. Um, but the reason that people don't spend much time in their sweet spot maybe is because of all the other things that they're spending their time on. Right. right. So it's the, the top left and the bottom right and the bottom left. And so that's, we call those distractions are things which are maybe things that you like doing or you're quite good at but aren't high impact. Mm-hmm. Like I only recently delegated doing payments in our bank system just because I always quite like the other cast members and I feel like an international jet set. It's stupid. 10,000 pounds there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. no, there's no good reason why I should be doing that. Right? Or, or you've got drains. So those are the things which are important and significant and impactful, but um, don't sit within your skill set. Yeah. 
And so I, I definitely know what mine are on that is. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I really, until just two or three months ago, I was doing all the marketing for our company. Myself, yeah. And I'm terrible at marketing. Yeah. So it wasn't really getting done, and it's I frustrated with myself. And um, so you know, I, I hired someone to do it, and immediately, like you know, the, the results and the work on that picked up. And then you got disasters. So these are things that you know it's not a good use of your time and you hate doing it. And so we, our administration was in an operation a few weeks ago and I sort of found myself doing travel bookings and, and sending out materials <laughs> and things that I haven't done for a long time. And, uh, so for, for me, based on what I normally do, that, that's not a good use of time. Um, but there's a, there's a few things quite interesting about Sweet Spot to think about. One is that your disasters and drains and, and distractions are other people's sweet spots. So you live in a complementary world um, and there's people that are willing to take on those things. And a successful uh, team is someone who, where you have a makeup of everyone who has different s- sweet spots and disaster zones. Exactly. That's how you excel. I, I can't, you, I don't need a room full of dealers. Exactly. <laughs> it's because the, the, the bad, the, all the things I envision of bad tasks won't get done. So yeah, it's, yeah. And the other thing is that your sweet spot also divides into four, so it's kind of fractal. So, I, you know, I was showing a story earlier, which is the, the genesis of sweet spot, actually, how it started, was when I was running my company back in China, so it's about six or seven years ago. And we were still a very small team back then. Mm-hmm. And so people were wearing multiple hats. So I had a finance manager, and she wasn't, she wasn't just doing finance. She was also doing uh, HR and operations and good import, goods import, export, all these things. And so we sat down, and we had to develop a model for planning out how she wanted to focus the direction of her career. And so that's how I came up with the sweet spot. And so she said, I, I just want to do finance and <laughs> everything else else is my sweet spot. And it took us a couple of years. Mm-hmm. We had to grow the company, we had to recruit, we had to sort of delegate and that sort of stuff. And, but we got there and so she was only doing finance work and she was very happy. Um, but then when we sat down at the sweet spot again, obviously she said, well, actually, <laughs> within finance, there's, there's this and that, and there's finance management, the strategy and counting and treasury, and I like this bit and not that bit, and yeah. just keep growing yeah. so I can keep delegating stuff. So, uh, but again, people like that idea that it kind of doesn't end. As you get good at things, you realise that there are levels to it, and, and there's niches within niches that you can explore. And also, we change over time, right? Mm-hmm. What's important to us now? So sometimes you meet people who are Great at sales, but then it starts getting the fell with it. And they say, actually, what I really like to do now is start training other people to be good at sales. And mm. so it's got keeps moving as, as you progress through our And so if you we're looking at that concept of always evolving, which I think is kind of the the key message there, is that identifying what what works and then developing on and progressing on. What made you think, okay, let's let me take that my experience of you know uh, nurturing teams to be their best and to show they're unique and understand their sweet spot to writing and publishing the book. Well, it was it was kind of a, a practical, pragmatic thing, you know, really. Um, <laughs> so I, this is something I developed for my own team, and then when I started coaching other teams, I quite naturally started to use the tool because that's what was were missing, and it got really well received. Yeah. So teams started to really use it. And I, I do a lot of trainings around the tools that we teach for scaling up. And I start introducing it in training days. At the end of the day, we always go around the room and everyone says, like, what was my number one takeaway? Mm. And I started hearing the word probably again, get sweet spots with ones. Like 50, 60, 70% of the people would say that. So but right, it's, it's clearly something that works. And I had teams whereby the terminology of it really stuck. So it was the Christmas party at one of my 
clients last year, and the CEO in front of a big room, a couple hundred people, and he was doing the, the presentation of his strategy to develop. And I quickly realized that anything that was good within this presentation was described as being in their sweet spot. So it got way beyond just the original description of individuals' areas of yeah. strength and competence and expertise. Um, to be, you know, they had a sweet spot within their strategy. And <laughs> so it, it really stuck. And then I think I, I, what I really realized that we have to communicate this more widely is when I noticed other coaches, so people not in my team, not in my business, also mm-hmm. working with those companies who picked up sweet spot from us were then using it with their other customers. Oh, really? Oh, okay. So it was becoming a bit of a... Yeah, so I thought, okay, well, it's, 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 <laughs> you know, it's like a brand on this and yeah. start telling the world. And how have you found the process of writing a book? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I naturally sort of write a fair bit anyway. Um, so I've, I've done okay with the discipline of it. I mean, I did hire a couple of coaches to keep me accountable because uh, I believe in, in coaching to get things done. Um, I suppose it, it brings me face to face with my limitations, though, as mm-hmm. a writer. Mm-hmm. And I write in the same way that I think, in the same way that I talk, which yeah, I mean, I get bored of. So, yeah, how do I sort of keep it? What's what it the audience going to think? <laughs> yeah, that's it. So, and have you been have you been really open in terms of sharing the book with friends and family and asking for like brutally honest feedback? And have you had that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I, I've read a really helpful book which helps people to write their own books. And one of the things there's a whole chapter in there about sharing the manuscript and getting feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, which is very valuable advice, which I followed. And and some people, you know, it's just a few helpful points, and some people have gone through it kind of page by page with, with lots of, of red lines and stuff. So that's been very helpful. And what I've said to people each time is like, the more brutal and the more honest that you can be, the more valuable that is for me. Um, and, and I really believe that. And occasionally there are moments that are a bit uncomfortable, but they're uncomfortable because someone's called out a truth. You know? so, yeah. So it's, it's, it's that positive pain, if you so when we're thinking about um, people, so once people have established this is my sweet spot, this is what this is where I really excel, this is what I really enjoy, they understand that. How do they implement the changes needed on a you know like small habits daily to make that massive impact change on on, on their life or their career? Um, how do people go about that? What steps should they be taking once? They understand their sweet spot to implement that on a, an achievable daily scale. Sure. So there's a well, one of the key tenets of the book is that an exercise becomes a habit, and a habit becomes a mindset, and, and that sort of runs throughout the whole the whole book. So sweet spot itself is a, is an exercise that's repeated every three months. Okay. So you do it for yourself every three months. Yeah. So it's a bit like you know when you move house. Like the, the closet or the garage is miraculously empty. Yeah, the spring clean. Yeah, and then yeah. three months later, it's full of stuff. Again. Yeah, and then you have so it's it's that kind of spring clean, but it's also a, a resetting. Particularly if you, if you manage teams, if you're a leader of teams, resetting yourself and aligning yourself with the developmental goals of, of people in your teams, and that's important to keep to refresh. And so it's it's a habit. But what happens though is, like all things that are habits, the more you do it, the more your mind naturally then starts to catch those mistakes earlier. Yeah. So a lot of that, so we've we found that there are four ways of eliminating or reducing time spent on the 3D activities, so mm-hmm. distractions, drains, and disasters. 
And we have an acronym called SODA. 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 Very easy to remember. Stop, outsource, delegate, automate. Those are, by and large, the four ways that you can reduce or eliminate time and activity if it's not in your sweet spot. Um, so the exercise of sweet spot is step by step going through. So first of all, what is your sweet spot? Specifically, what are the activities? Secondly, what's getting in the way? What are you spending time on? What are the top four or five things that are in your 3Ds that you could eliminate or reduce? And then how? So thinking through soda, you then write out the tasks of what you can do to reduce that. That then saves you a whole bunch of time. So the final step is what proactive steps are you going to take to actually spend more time in your sweet spot? Because if you just go and spend more time in business as usual, you haven't really changed anything, moved anywhere. Right? But what happens as you repeat that over the months and the years is that your mindset changes. So if you take stop, for example, a lot of that is about setting boundaries. It's about saying no. No to things that don't fit with what's in your sweet spot. That's where people often go wrong. But as you go through that exercise, you start to then quickly think, oh, should I say yes to this? Because I know that if I do, the next time I do a sweet spot, I'm just going to have to remove it again. Right? <laughs> and that internalizes, and you just get yeah. better at saying no to things. Yeah. One of the ones actually is, is putting a price on your time. Yeah. And one of the reasons why people don't make progress is because they are unwilling to spend money on getting rid of tasks. Which okay. sounds a bit counterintuitive, yeah. right? But people tend to have the mindset, well, if I can do it myself, then I will. Yeah. Right? Why should I hire someone and pay them or they can do it? Or why should I pay an outsource? Or why should I pay for the express service or the delivery service? Or why should I have them deliver from the shop to my home? Mm. Well, it's because it saves you time. Mm. Right? And it's the most valuable thing you have. And the higher you value your time, the more you're willing to spend other people to come do things for you. What should you use that time for? You should be using your time in your sweet spot. And if you've got your sweet spot right, it should be higher value. Mm. So it's a changing in that mindset. And that, that fundamentally is the mindset of the entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. It's that I have a particular skill, a superpower that's high value. And I know that if I pay other people to do things that aren't in that, I can do more of it. And so mm. maximizing that. And this is just a tool that allows you to, to replicate that entrepreneurial mindset into your own life. So go back to your question, uh, which is about habits and how do you keep these things alive? Well, one of the, the big things that we do with teams that we work with is we, we implement daily huddles. Okay, yeah. So a daily huddle is where a team, so typically, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten people, mm -hmm. every morning for 10 to 15 minutes, they'll uh, stand up and they'll, they'll have a quick communication around, uh, around the room. And it's typically agenda items like, what's your number one priority for today? Yeah. Where are you stuck today? Um, what help do you need from the team? Or, or share a piece of good news. Each team does its own slight variant on that. But it's great for, for team bonding. But what it does is it makes the communication more efficient mm -hmm. because you don't have all those ad hoc emails going back and forth and, and people just get um, stuff communicated in that short period of time. So that's a, a habit that is great for keeping people on track particularly if they've got uh, plans. Now, within the context of, of sweet spot, what we suggest is don't do sweet spot alone. Uh, do it with someone else for a couple of reasons. One is that they can coach you through the exercise of doing sweet spot and you can coach them. Mm -hmm. It's hard to be objective about yourself. Yeah. No one can do that, really. Um, so if you have somebody with whom you can share your ideas, bounce them off, and they can ask good questions, you get a much higher quality output. Um, and then the second part is that's the person that will hold you accountable. And you set accountability check-ins with them. So once you've got that list of right, I'm going to 
you know, find a service provider for my accounting, for example, mm-hmm. or, or I'm going to use a software tool to remove all of the emails from the office and it's going to save me time, right? That person, you check in with them every week mm-hmm. and you hold each other accountable. So a, a coach or accountability buddy. We actually offer the service ourselves, but it's, you can easily do it with um, someone that you know. Um, and so you have to do both, right? You have to set a plan and you have to set the rhythm of, of being accountable. Mm-hmm. And how do you, so you definitely have to set the room of being accountable, I think that's, that's it's crucial to kind of make sure that you're staying on track. If you're thinking about, um, we're, we're looking at it from the, on, from the entrepreneur side, in terms of the, their employees, how do they, how can they manage daily their uniqueness and, and making sure that they're, they're referring back to their sweet spots because the entrepreneurs kind of changing the, their approach. Um, it has to be for an inclusive culture. Employees need to be able to do that as well. So do you talk to entrepreneurs about how they can kind of filter that out across the team as well? Yeah, no, absolutely, 100%. So <coughs> I do this training with, with entrepreneurs very regularly. And obviously I have them do the exercise. Yeah. Then finding their own sweet spot and thinking, God, I really need to get rid of that. And I should, so for example, delegate. Like a lot of people, the reason they delegate stuff is simply because it takes a bit of work and effort. The act of delegation, you've got to find the boats, you've got to train them, you've got to make sure that they know what to do and trust them to get on with it. And so they come away with their own sort of to-do list which they find really, really helpful. But I always say to them, like, the biggest benefit that you'll get from this is by mm-hmm. doing it with your team. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you can increase their productivity by 5-10% um, by doing this one and be aligned with their developmental goals, then you'll, you'll significantly improve the performance of the business and they get that. But obviously what happens is it triggers these conversations whereby, so for example, you know, I, I did a sweet spot conversation with a lady in my team a few a few months ago, and she's one of our junior coaches. Mm. And I always think, you know, I like to put our junior coaches in front of the room more, give them a chance to train something, lead an yeah. activity, so they get more exposure with the clients and also develop their, and anyway, I sat down with her and we're doing a sweet spot. And I said, so what's in your sweet spot? She said, well, firstly, I'd like to tell you what isn't. And she said, actually, I've thought about it a lot, and I'm not, I don't like facilitating in front of the room. Yeah. I much prefer the one-to-one coaching. Yeah. No, we wouldn't have had that conversation, right, if yeah. it hadn't been, right, we're having, we're doing sweet spot for Yeah. And it was so strange, because I now know there's not much point in putting her, and, and, and well, the, her development needs to be around recruiting and training other junior coaches because she's fantastic at that, building mm-hmm. the processes that they use. And then if I put her as a one-to-one coach with our best clients, because mm-hmm. that's our sweet spot. Mm-hmm. And if I start to say, well, why don't you sort of progress to being a, a senior coach in facilitation? That's not, no. Um, so almost like making bespoke strategies where people can thrive. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And there's a saying by this great author from the States, Jim Collins, and he says, if you want to motivate don't spend time motivating them. Remove the things that demotivate them. Mm. Like, don't demotivate, declutter. Again, that's what Sweet Spot's all about. So, for example, I was doing it with another member of our team recently, and she said, Well, there is one thing. Yeah, as well, there is one thing. Um, and she manages diaries for the team, and uh, there's another team member who has this crazy busy diary, and she said, Well, it just it drives me nuts. I cannot manage her diary because mm. it's so, so full and so busy. And the only way to solve that actually is for me to go and have a conversation. 
But for her to feel that the team that she works with and for want to help her to remove the things that are bothering her both most is is fantastic. You, know, mm. you, you can sort of sense the. It's not really about gratitude, is it? But it's just allows her to get on and enjoy her her work. Uh, yeah. yeah. So that's that's usually where like the biggest payoff comes because. Issues like that, people aren't necessarily going to proactively come forward with. They're going to say, oh, hey, you know, I'm fed up with doing this task. Can you please take it off me? You have to go and ask. Mm. Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I want to touch upon um, neurodiversity, but, but mostly at autism, because I, I know we've spoken about this. Your diagnosis came quite late, but you you're, you founded um, Autistic Entrepreneur. So I'd like to kind of hear more about that and just in terms of, neurodivergent talent how what, what you're doing in that space because I know it's a diversity and inclusion area that you're you're passionate about sure well yeah, once I was diagnosed um, I was sort of left thinking right I need to go and find other autistic entrepreneurs mm. and I, I was I was certain that it wasn't a coincidence my personal experience was like well the reason I couldn't work for other people or the reason I worked for myself is because I couldn't work for other people it's a big part of it. Like, I just didn't fit in with the hierarchy and the culture and the boss and all those sorts of things. Like I created so much conflict. Mm. Um, so it just seems a very natural thing that I would become an entrepreneur. Now, I associate that closely with my autism. So if that's the case, there must be so many others out there. Right? So how do I find my people? So I'll set up a community and call it autistic entrepreneurs. Um, and but what I found though is that it's quite difficult to find autistic entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to an event organised by the University of London, and it was called Autistic Entrepreneurs, and I was the only one in the room. Wow. And, and there was a presentation by a professor who had clearly just rebadged a presentation about neurodiversity for employees and called it about entrepreneurs. And so I was like a thorn in their side all day saying, hang on, this is not about yeah. entrepreneurs. So that was kind of what drove that particular event was the one drove, right, this needs to this needs to happen, this needs to get done. Um, but what I found though is that I think the reason why they're hard to find is not that the people aren't out there, it's that autism itself still has a high degree of stigma about it. Mm-hmm. I still feel uncomfortable, you know. Um, I sat with my aunt about six months ago and I'd been raising funds for the National Autistic Society by doing this crazy long run. And so she'd seen the fundraising page, and, and there's a video with me saying about being autistic. And she said, What's this rich lady? What's that thing you said about it? Autistic? And it, it felt like, you know, I can imagine how maybe 30, 40 years ago, like the gay cousin must have felt coming out to, to the yeah. parents. It's got that kind of awkwardness to it. And so I feel like autistic people, particularly those that are ambitious and maybe well known, um, we need to have our coming out moment. You know? mm-hmm. So a lot of it, actually, what I found myself doing is about normalising. It's about saying to people, it's okay to do whatever you do, to be a professional, to be an entrepreneur, whereas, and say, yeah, I'm, I'm autistic. Yeah. It doesn't mean... Normalising the conversation and yeah. removing the, the kind of, if there's a, if people there's a stigma or uncomfortable and being open and honest and being able to be authentic, your authentic self is really important. So, yeah, it's kind of like... I understand what you mean in terms of it being celebrated more, you know, and not a kind of hidden secret that you whisper behind your hands. Because, you know, I don't know how you feel about if if someone is 
dyslexic, I feel like the conversation is a lot more open or, I, you know, I've made a mistake, I've misspelled that. Oh, okay, kind of move, moving on. And then if you, have you experienced when you've said to someone, I'm autistic, uh, any type of like uncomfortableness from them or they don't know what to say or? So, by and large, I'm at a stage in my life where most of the people I meet, I'm in some kind of position of respectability. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, I run companies, mm-hmm. I work with big successful companies, or I'm on stage, or I'm speaking on something. So usually when I come up with people actually say I'm autistic, um, it's this mix of, oh, that's interesting. There's a raised eyebrows, and this guy, autistic. And then you can see them kind of recalibrating their yeah. preconceptions there and then. Um, you know, if I'd been the one in the corner that no one was talking to and you know, maybe hadn't done much in life, then the, the, that would have fed prejudices. Yeah, so you feel like there's a stereotype that people may have, a prejudice that people may have, that this is what an autistic person right. will be like. Yeah, and I kind of, I think I break that. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it is still a slightly awkward moment, I find, yes. Um, and it raises eyebrows, but it's, it's not... You know, the people's reaction isn't, oh, you know, that changes everything about him and therefore, mm. you know, I would look down on him. It, if anything, it changes their views about autism. Awesome. Yeah. And you said that your son Harry is autistic as well. Yeah. In terms of, and what one of the questions I had from earlier, from, the, from when you were talking about your diagnosis, was did he have the same six months of yes. testing? Yeah. and? Is he a school age now? Like yeah, what? he's 14. He was diagnosed when he was about six or seven. So the school picked up on it, and then it was through the NHS that he was diagnosed. And what sort of support has, has he had throughout it, um, his diagnosis and being at school? Yeah, it's been super helpful for Harry. Um, I mean, the biggest part of it, I do believe, is about self-awareness. Yeah. Um, and, and even at that age, it's sort of helped him to understand him um, and the things that he can. You know, can and can't do it, shouldn't should do it. It's not that he's super limited, but it, it gives him an explanation and a reason for certain ways that he might be different from mm. kids. But on a practical level, yeah, like the school he went to, he goes, we went to visit a few private schools and listen to them, said you're actually better off in, in a large state school because they have mm-hmm. facilities. So he goes to the, the best state school in Oxford. I'm actually careful saying that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the school he goes to a good school. And so he's been in. Um, the, the special needs department there and so you know every six months we go and meet and there were some issues and he does some difficulties to start off with and I do genuinely believe that it was a lot of those sessions um, that helped him to transition into that school and dealt with a few of the issues and in fact we got a letter a few months ago saying we're taking him off the special needs register and it's a sort of mixture of um, pride I suppose in him mm-hmm. and I'm not concerned because I think he's, he's generally settled in well. But yeah, no, that, that was really, really helpful yeah. to, for him and for us. And what's his um, superpower? Well, I'll tell you what. He, so his fascination now for, this one's gone on for a good long time, it's been 12 months, has been aeroplanes. Okay. And he'll spend hours watching YouTube videos of planes landing and taking off and he's recognise them all and he goes on these websites where he can see where every plane can normal is at any given time and so he has there must this, be a lot of planes on that screen <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but he has this amazing ability to assimilate all that information over a prolonged period of time 
and maintain an interest and a focus in it that you know, others would have, have dropped long ago. Um, he hasn't yet, you know, one day that will serve him well. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the moment, it sort of feels like a slight eccentricity or oddity almost, mm-hmm. but one day it will serve him well. I don't know quite what that will be yet, mm-hmm. uh, but you can see um, a corner of the world for him, right, in doing that. Um, so every time I, I take a, a flight anywhere, I have to take a photograph of the safety card of the plane yeah. and send it to him. Um, and if I don't do that, then, you know, he gets... It's pretty murder. Yeah, he gets <laughs> upset with me. And even though I've taken the same photos of the same safety cards, <laughs> <laughs> It's quite lovely, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, that's really nice to hear. (laughs) Um, Okay, so how would those close to you describe your job? You know, I asked my son this last night when I saw your questions, and he's 14, and he went, don't. (laughs) And I said, come on, he said, don't. Business coach? I said, yeah, but actually, what does that mean? Coaching for businesses? (laughs) So I didn't get very far with him. The way I... So I, was, like I, said, I was on the phone to my mum the other day because um, I'd done two days with an, a new customer, which is what puts me in my sweet spot. Yeah. So helping a company to you know, really figure out their, their strategy in a short space of time. And um, I called my mum up and I said, well, it's major. There's, there's a theory in, in economics, which is that there's three types of company mm. in, in the world. You've got mice, gazelles and elephants. So mice are the small companies, the mom and pop shops and the self-employed people and the um, tradesmen, but they don't grow. So it's a lot of people, a lot of jobs and um, GDP, they don't grow. And then the elephants are the large blue chip corporations that, again, hire a lot of people GDP, but again, they don't really grow either. And in the middle, you've got these gazelles. Mm-hmm. And the gazelles are the companies that are mid-sized, they're high growth, and they generate all of the, the wealth and the jobs and the opportunity and a lot of really technology as well in the economy. And so I help gazelles. And I think... If I was to ask my family, most of them have cottoned onto that bit. Mm. Andy helps gazelles. <laughs> helps them. Well, that's yeah, and, and, and loves it. And, you know, feels a strong sense of pride and excitement yeah. about, about doing that. Yeah. And what it comes from is I, when I was in my teens and twenties, I used to love reading business books because lots of them have got these amazing stories. You know, people like Sam Walton and um, uh, Steve Jobs and. It's amazing what those guys do, what they create from nothing. Mm. And it's always inspired me. And so all the companies that I work with, they're, they're at that kind of phase. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's so dynamic and interesting. It's and that vibe. But what it is, is like, because with, with large companies, it's hard because you, know, you can't really turn the shit very quickly. And, and, and it's very hard to get one person who's kind of in charge and be decisive. Small companies, very small companies, don't quite have the resources to really have an impact. But these mid-sized companies, you can actually set a direction and a strategy, and you can make a difference and have a huge impact. And particularly, I mean, not super nationalist or anything, but I, I, I love working with British companies that are making an impact in the world. Yeah. They're, they're sort of exporting. You talk exporting. with such passion I, 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 until you're loving it. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. I'm very lucky at what I do. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice to kind of wake up and do something that hits your sweet spot and that, that you genuinely love to do every day. I mean, there's going to be elements that aren't your favourite, but it's it's kind of really been able to understand, this is where I really thrive, this is what I really enjoy, and kind of having the ability. So my experience is that in a business context, as an entrepreneur, that thing that you talk about, so there'll always be things that you don't like. 
Well, the great freedom that we have as entrepreneurs is that there doesn't have to be. Mm. It really doesn't. It's just something you don't like. You hire someone or you pay someone to do it. Because nine times out of ten, whatever that thing is that you don't like, it's probably lower value than the thing that you do. And so, again, it's one of the reasons I love being an entrepreneur, but working with entrepreneurs, <laughs> but there is that sort of bracing sense of freedom. So something I don't like. Well, There's a solution. That's right. It's in my power to change. Yeah. I think it's harder for people that have jobs, mm. you know, because I can talk about suites a lot more with them, but those conversations have to happen with their managers and team leaders to a greater extent for them to really be able to change stuff. Um, which again is why if you work in a small company, there is that flexibility. So mm. the story of my finance manager, you know, it took us two years, but uh, she was working in a company where change was possible. And it's partly because we're small and dynamic. And, and if you're in a you know a department of a large corporation, that sort of thing is just hard. It can do. be, yeah, yeah. It's just more of a challenge. Um, if you could have a billboard of anything on it, what would it be and why? Well, I, I'd go back to that um, Delphi, mm. uh, know thyself. Um, I, I just, we talk about a lot in these kind of contexts about being authentic. About being true to yourself, and a lot of these phrases come out of know thyself. Um, what's really difficult in life is knowing the answer to that question. Actually, you've got to go around the block a few times, you have to fail a bit, and you have to realize the things that aren't really you. Um, I mean, for me, the, the biggest moment of realization of that for me was when I was about 30 years old. And I'd been working for large companies and I'd got myself like sent a lot of conflicts and troubles. <laughs> um, and so I became an entrepreneur and it didn't work out for me. Mm. It was failing. And I'd always had a problem with alcohol. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had to get sober. And so, you know, that uncomfortable realization of addiction mm-hmm. um, forced a lot of changes of behaviors and it forced me to sort of face the world without distortion. Mm-hmm without a crutch, without medication. <laughs> and it's kind of a, a bracing thing because it, it forced me to really think, what do, not what does my ambition want, or yeah. what do my drives want, or what does my, um, you know, we talk about, it's a terrible word, isn't it, to talk about sins and whatnot, but you know, there's a bit of me that wants to, you know, eat and drink and, uh, you know, <laughs> find girls and, and do all those sorts of things. but. That, that's it, it, it takes time in life to separate out those types of drives mm. from what's actually really good for me. Yeah. And so when I say know thyself, I don't just mean that in a what gives you pleasure or what a hedonistic yeah. sense of the world. It's like really, it's taken me years to understand the difference, for example, between, uh, well, anger and most things, but <laughs> right, <laughs> anger and jealousy, for example. Right. Like, being angry at someone because they've cut you off because they're driving a big car. So is, is it really anger at what they've done or is it that you're just jealous because you want a big car? Yeah. I've, I've had that experience. It's yeah. like this guy and his big car, who does he think he is? Yeah, yeah, Actually, yeah. I would like a car. Yeah. And, I, and I would probably have done the same yeah, thing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, it, but it takes, I, my experience is it's taken a lot of time and work to de- develop that degree of kind of honest self-awareness. Yeah. So when I say know thyself, I mean it in that context. And how long have you been sober for? I've been sober for 12 years, so 7th of, uh, 9th of November 2007. And 
did in terms of your journey with um, your sobriety was small steps daily habits did that help yeah like so much yeah meetings, AA meetings um, every day for the first 90 days oh really I didn't know that yeah 100% and um, yeah that's 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 what I did and I remember like the first meeting with AA was Yeah, yeah. So and have you done that consistently over there? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of life is more, it's maintenance. You know, it's like taking a shower. It's a, it's a habit. You, <laughs> you have to keep doing it. It's not an insight that you have once that, that you then retain. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that habits were huge. And then also changing daily personal habits. Um, obviously, yeah, you know, moving out from the house and that sort of thing. But like, who do I spend time with? Which parties do I go right, to? Right, yeah. To? Um, do you have that conflict now? Do you have that conversation with yourself with events and people that you're meeting? And always no, yeah. yeah. It's been too long, but in, in, in the early days, it was a lot about that. Um, I, Which is example, challenging, right? Like, is you for me when I think about people that I drink with or have been drunk with, it's a certain characteristic, right? And then you think about if I remove that, I'm AMI going to be less interesting but what does that friendship or relationship now look like so it is a challenge well yeah there's a lot of people who were sort of quite friends but actually they were just sort of drinking partners yeah. but for example I, I used to every day I'd come home and I'd go straight for the fridge and I'd take out a beer um, so then what I had to do when I got sober was I'd hang around the fridge <laughs> with sort of shaky fingers and so I had to fill it up with coke yeah. And so then, then I was drinking like yeah, that's a new addiction, yeah. <laughs> and, and then well, I, 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 and you get a sponsor when you, when you get to an AA, and he said to me, he says, well, Andy, give them up in the order in which they will kill you. So and then I got so addicted to caffeine, and, and then I stopped that. So then I would fill the fridge up with like tins of soda water. Yeah. But I had to kind of sort of, again, it was so habitual. And that took quite a lot of time to gradually ease away. So it's a process. Yeah. It's a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> um, which book or film would you recommend to people and why? Um, I've always loved the author Ian Banks. Mm-hmm. Absolutely brilliant. His you know, science fiction, well, he, he writes two types of books. He's got kind of crime thrillers. And a lot of people have heard of things like The Wasp Factory and mm-hmm. Road. But he has a series of science fiction based out around a universe called The Culture. And it's the most imaginative, because uh, we're all familiar with like science fiction alternate universes, but the ones he's, he's created there, like the amount of depth and, and, and detail that, that's gone into it, is, I find just astonishing. Mm. Um, so I love it. I absolutely kept it. I've read all, all, all those books multiple times. And the other day, in fact, this new customer we kicked off with, it was one of the first times that I've met someone else who's like a super fan of yeah. It's a it's a brand of hard of, of science fiction called kind of hard science fiction. Okay. It's by and large sticks to the rules of science. Right. Rather than sort of space opera type. Yeah. Of, uh, fantasy. Yeah. Fantasy. Um, I may struggle with this though. <laughs> yeah, I mean Ian Banks for me that's my kind of go to place of just sheer wonder and, and escape. It's, 
and, and also it's, the stories are incredibly exciting and compelling and I don't know where his ingenuity or inspiration came from but it's, I find it absolutely works well genius. I'll have to have a look. <laughs> which book would you recommend I start with? Start with Consider Flavors, which is okay. chronologically the first one in, in that universe. It, it's like it, the first time you get introduced to any alter universe, it does take a little bit of time. You just got to keep reading. Once yeah. you start getting into the story of that protagonist uh, after you know, 30, 40 pages, then after that. You're in. Yeah. Thank you. Um, what's the most important thing you've learned in your life? Uh, am I allowed to repeat answers? <laughs> well, for me, I, to be honest, getting sober really yeah. is, but it's part of that. When, when I use the words for sobriety, I, I mean it in the same context of, of knowing myself. Yeah. Of, um, life based on on the honest understanding of, of one's real emotions. So there's there's um this condition that goes along with autism called lexithymia, which is an inability or a lack of ability to understand one's own emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, so you basic things like, I know it's not an emotion, it's not a physical sensation, but it's between tiredness and hunger or something, which would be very mm-hmm. distinguishing. Um, but, for example, distinguishing loneliness and lust. Right, They can yeah. be experienced in, in very similar ways, it's hard to understand the difference. Um, and, or for example, anger and guilt. Mm-hmm. Like, I got angry at people because of stuff that I'd done. You see children doing the same thing. Like, were you the one that stole the sweetie? How dare you write, I was the one that stole the sweetie. You know the song. Mm-hmm. And so that an honest understanding of my own emotional self for me has been like the most important thing. And, and the way that a big part of that journey for me has been sobriety. Yeah. Do you feel like it's an ongoing journey? Well, yeah. And ultimately, it's also what led to diagnosis for me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I assume it just carries on and on and on. Maybe the pace drops off and it's, I don't know how many more. See, what's really interesting is when you have a moment like that and you realise, oh, geez, I'm not quite what I thought I was. Mm-hmm. I'm you know, I, I'm autistic, mm-hmm. you know, I'm excited, all these sorts of things. Like, how many more moments like that are there going to be along the lower line? I, I do sometimes sit and wonder that. Um, yeah, I did. no. Yeah. But those context-changing moments. Yeah. They're, they're, I mean, they're uncomfortable deeply uncomfortable at the time, but afterwards you think, well, wow, that's my perspective shifted. And are they to be welcomed? Well, in a way, I hope there aren't too many because it means that I'm deluded <laughs> right now, right, which is uncomfortable. But on the other hand, you know, I'm a student of knowledge, right, and I would like to. And I think it can be embraced. I don't know if they have to be welcomed, but it can be embraced and developed on from that. So, yeah. yeah. So I do and I don't hope that there are more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, and what's your best tip for making the world a better place? Uh, don't eat meat. I've been vegetarian for a long time now. And so I, I lived in China for a long, long time. Mm. It's a country going through incredible transitions. Yeah. And one of which was everyone suddenly starting to eat meat. Mm-hmm. And you could see it play out in the physical environment. When did you, when did you first start living in China? Right And when did you come back? Well... Have you seen my company a couple of years ago, but we moved back about sort of six years ago. Okay, yeah. So when you were there, there, there was less meat consumption than when. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so it's taken off. And so you know their use of land. I, I, I got to experience that type of transition in a very short space of time. 
And yeah, we simply don't have enough planets no. to support everybody eating meat. Yeah. Um, so. I'm, I'm really passionate about this as well. I mean, I, I'm pescatarian, but I'm very conscious about our meat consumption and its sustainability and just like use of plastic and things. I really, look. Like, I've tried to make, it sounds weird, but my bathroom, I'm trying to make that plastic free, like do one room at a time. Um, but like my household products are vegan and like, our cleaning products are vegan, our, our detergents and stuff and just making that more of a conscious, sustainable living. Drives my kids wild. They're like, please don't change the toothpaste. I was like, I might do. We might be having the tablets. But yeah, I just think that there is, we're all aware of it. And I think that there is enough that we can do individually for it to be significant. It doesn't have, I wish governments did do more, but I don't think that we need to be like, well, if the government is all selling plastic toothbrushes, then I should continue to buy them. You can make a stand. So. Sorry, this is a question to you. Yeah. My daughter is now starting to make toothpaste. Oh, yeah. If you need someone to test. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, if we all stopped buying meat, the food industry would respond like that. And you see it starting to happen. Um, Most restaurants you go to these days have not just got vegetarian options, they've got vegan options. Mm -hmm. And you see it in supermarkets. Um, And the technology would follow very quickly. So the the amount of money that's been put into... um, it's growing significantly now because there's finally demand for it. Um, but we have the technology as a species, as a race, to solve sort of um, plant-based meats, yeah. if you like, or, or even lab-grown meats in a heartbeat. There just has to be the demand for it. It's heartbreaking, isn't it, when you see rainforests being torn down for pasture land, for meats to go into birds, and, whatever, and it's unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things that you look at it and you think, well, why is it this way? It's wrong, you know. It's it's it's. People are overweight, <laughs> unhealthy, dying younger than they should, eating something that's destroying the planet, and we actually have the technology to, to not do that. So why why don't we? It also bothers me, plays on my mind because the the injustice in the consumption. It's not all of the world that are eating all of the meat. Right. It's do you know what I mean? It's it's a percentage of us in. Um, the Western world that are consuming most of the meat. It's yeah, well, with the exception of certain cultures like like India, um, most of them would give them the chance, and that's that was my observation in China. Mm-hmm. It's it's much more to do with wealth than mm-hmm. anything else. Um, but this one, I think, actually is being led, dare I say, by um, some of the more advanced Western economies. Like in China these days, if you start talking about vegetarianism, veganism, you get fairly blank looks outside of kind of Buddhist circles. It's a little bit of awareness. But they're at an earlier stage of development where it's like, well, hey, we get to eat as much meat as we want. We yeah. Can, this is children. This is great. Yeah. Um, and we've kind of been through that and realised that yeah. there's, there's sort of something better on the other side. <laughs> what drove you to being vegetarian? Was it the, the sustainability of it? or Well, it's three things, right? In China. Secondly, sort of meat, food safety in China. <laughs> right, which is poor, mm. and meat sits at the top of the food chain. So whatever um, unhealthy things are in the food chain, they get concentrated within the top predators or the, the, the top consumers. Which means that you know, if you, for example, got mercury in the food chain, then it's all the pesticides that you mm. gets concentrated. It's actually it's, it's, it's unhealthy there. Well, there's a melanin food scare 
Mm -hmm. I actually remember this bit. There was milk powder, and I remember peeing blood one time because I had a tainted milk products out there. So, like, food health in China is a really big. That's thing. an eye opener. Yeah, and the third thing is uh, I'm a very keen runner, and I'm a distance runner, and so like weight is important and maintaining health. And I read quite a few books about guys who were top elite distance ultra runners who are vegetarian and vegan. And Have you seen well. Game Changers on Netflix? No. Oh, nice. check that. So it's about top athletes that stop consuming meat um, and how living a vegan lifestyle, their performance literally skyrockets. Um, so it's American football players, um, the one of the world's strongest guys that like lifts cars and stuff like mm. his... Basically, his performance increased once he lived lived a vegan lifestyle. Check it. I think you'll check it out. Feedback to me. I think you're going to love it. It's yeah, a game changer. So Scott Scott Jurek is uh, an ultra runner from the states. So his book called Eat and Run, which is all about that. And yeah, but I guess each sport has its people that are leading in, in that area. And in my case, running was my high access to. It. So yeah, those those are the three reasons. And it's funny, though, because when I was a kid, all my cousins, they were all vegetarian, and I ate meat, and I used to, I used to take them again. I remember standing outside a vegetarian restaurant in London, refusing to go in. Yeah. And and now they all eat meat, and I'm a vegetarian. Oh, wow. And, you know, yeah. And they all laugh at me now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see who will have the last laugh. <laughs> Well, Andy, it's been absolutely brilliant, brilliant meeting with you today. Um, can you tell the audience where they can get your book, Sweet Spot, from? Absolutely. www.sweetspot.guru. And what is in the, what's in the next few weeks coming up for you? Is there any, any other exciting news coming up? Uh, well, yeah, we're doing a few Sweet Spot trainings. The, the book will actually be um, printed, published, launched, and for sale. Um, so yeah, we, we're going to put a lot of effort behind, behind that launch. Um, so yeah, like I, said, I scored a nine at the beginning of the day because yeah, things are good. We, um, we have a lot of good things happening in life and mm. in our business at the moment. Yeah, cool. Thank you so much for today, Andy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.